Welcome to the Wiggly Podcast. I'm Heather from Wiggly Wigglers. I'm Richard from Bugs and Beasties, occasionally of Wiggly Wigglers. And I'm Farmer Phil. We are Wiggly Wigglers, Lower Blakeman Farm, Herefordshire. I mustn't say the world because Michael edits it out. But it's lovely to have you on board listening to our show. We've got new reviews coming in. We've got lots of stories this week. We've got Phil's DNA test is back. Anyone remember what it was about? I, I, I must admit, I don't really remember. No, no, I'm sure Phil mind. should remember. <laughs> we'll find out about it, eh? We've got a question in from a listener for you, Rich, really. We're going to have pheasant facts. We've been eating pheasants since Christmas every week. Rich has been eating wood pigeon, mm. but we're going to have pheasant facts this week going through the show. Remember the show we had darts facts? <laughs> I thought that was more fun, but pheasant facts this week. And we're going to find out about Farmer Phil's snow clearing episodes. First of all, we have been on the trail of poachers once again. Farmer Phil's night out for Heather is trundle down the lane in the truck, attempting to find poachers. Phil took you along? No, he didn't take me along. Okay. Hmm. He was leaving when I said, I can't let you go on your own, because if you get shot, you won't come home, and right. I won't know where you are. Right. And so I went, so went, grudgingly. Yeah, I'm sure. She goes, plays up, goes extra slowly, so there's no hope of catching up with anybody at all, because you're sat there waiting for her, and then moans all the time. It was And then cold. says, it's a complete waste of time, because you didn't find them anyway. So what's the, what's the scenario? What's it, how, you know, chasing poachers. I mean, bear in mind that the, the hordesmen that come up from South Wales with their 273s and, and uh, you know, their, uh, their long dogs and things like that. I mean, is, is it a thing to do to, to, to try and, uh, it's, to try and it probably, catch a poacher? It probably isn't. To, to say catch a poacher is exaggerating. All I'm really looking for is a vehicle number plate. Right because at that point I can get the police involved. Actually apprehending poachers is potentially a very dangerous operation and probably not to be taken on. But if you can get some information, some evidence, that the police could then operate on, they might not catch them for what they've done that night, but they can hound them. How successful have you been? Have you found any? Have you we've had, we've had successes in the past. Our biggest trouble is getting the police to engage with it because they don't carry wellies in their cars, they don't like getting out and about, and the success rate is low because the poachers are particularly good and the rules are particularly hard for them right. to get a conviction. Yeah. You have to catch the poacher with the poached game, the rifle, the ammunition, all the dogs, and you've got to get it all together in the same place at the same time, and they know that. Yeah. We were alerted by Sam and Alex, who live opposite by about three miles, I suppose. So they live in the village of Preston. Yeah. They're in their hot tub. Right. OK. <laughs> you know, lovely evening, hot tub, stars, you yeah. know, glass of wine. Yeah. And they see the lamps. So you see the lamp go up into the sky. OK. And then they saw the tailgate 
lights. Yeah. But you see, that actually suggests that in this instance they weren't very professional poachers because a good poacher isn't going to wave his lamp around like no. Darth Vader. No, no. <laughs> it does give the game away somewhat. Hmm. Anyway, the result was that we didn't catch them, we didn't see them, but Farmer Phil is convinced that they were driving a Daihatsu or a Suzuki. So if you own one of those vehicles and you were in the region of Lower Blakemere Farm on Monday night at 20 past 10, please come clean, because we are (laughs) gunning for you. That's going to work, isn't it? (laughs) That's going to (laughs) work. Okay, here we go, Rich. This is from Gillian. And I'll do the P.S. first, because I like the P.S. best. Okay. P.S. Having listened from the beginning, and as fond as I am of him, I'm still not clear on exactly what it is Ricardo does. (laughs) What's his remit, and what does he do? Does he actually have a real job with you? No offence, Rich, says Gillian. None taken, Gillian. None taken. No, well, you I, haven't I don't, really I got a job with not, us, not, have you? Not now. No, I was. I did almost four years with you guys, didn't I? And before uh, you and went off your trolley. I, I uh, yeah, right, yeah. yeah. And then I started up on my own at the beginning of last year. So I still do bits and pieces for Wigglies. Quite a lot of talks, Garden for Wildlife talks. Still uh, do some shows like uh, River Cottage, which is coming up at the end of March, and obviously the podcast bits and pieces like that and also contribute to the catalogues do some filming and things like that don't we and what exciting things have you got in your pipeline in the pipeline well at the moment i'm i'm working on a a nursery grounds where i'm putting in some fantastic sensory pathing and some beautiful tunnels with coppiced chestnut oh and you provide our wigglies hazel uh, yes that's right yeah of course i i cut the willow for the uh, for the wigglies and i do a lot of soft landscaping in school grounds using willow and hazel making willow features and hazel dens and in addition to that, hard landscaping like outdoor classrooms with fantastic woven willow or, or hazel panelling and, uh, and green sedum roofs and things like that. But also, at the moment, uh, I'm uh, doing some work with local communities in Herefordshire, being employed in a project that's been funded by the Bournemouth Foundation, working for a company called Community First, a company that I was in post with before I came to Wigley's, doing what are called energy descent is it, action Is it plans. an NGO? Uh, it, it's it, it is well, it, was, is it, it is a non-government making... non-government organisation certainly, but it it's a charity, so voluntary sector, and I'm working with three different communities to look at ways that those communities can uh, essentially become more self-sufficient in the future and assess what will motivate people in order to to sort of make those changes within their communities in terms of reducing energy inputs, uh, improving uh, infrastructure, local services and the like, and uh, ensuring that people have a a valid input and uh, and become less reliant on external agencies to uh, run their lives. Why don't you, instead of going to see those three communities, spend your whole time in Herefordshire Council offices telling them that they should be buying local, they should be encouraging local trade, that they should act from the bottom up? It's Spend a, all the money in there. <laughs> it's just an interesting thing. We, we, we've all just before this moment, we all, we all. Well, I was okay. Everybody else got quite wound up by <laughs> some of the things I'd said previously. So we won't go into massive detail no, about what you just no. said. But uh, that would make perfect sense. It, it, there, there is a, a real uh, paradox across local authorities, across the board, again because of bureaucracy, 
ultimately local authorities are quite keen to promote initiatives that will promote uh, local food procurement and the like. They just don't tend to, to do it themselves. <laughs> or at least there are, uh, there are departments within local authorities that tend to ignore those that, those that would. I feel Richard's uh, message may be slightly compromised. I, I don't feel that I can com- uh, comment. The not, common... not in a broadcastable fashion, anyway. <laughs> the common pheasant is native to Russia. That's the thing. You know, I thought that they were, in fact, North American. But well, they are. I didn't realise are. that. Says this here, Nature of Britain farmland, the common pheasant is native to Russia. It's been widely introduced elsewhere as a game bird. Now, I have tweeted while you've been waffling, right. and I've said that we are recording the show now. Any questions, any comments? And we've got lots in. So, first of all, Big Norm wishes you a happy birthday. Thanks and he much, said he's sorry you missed it a couple of weeks ago. Well, uh, I'm, I'm sorry you missed it as well, but you, you know, you'd have, there's been some serious travelling involved in order, to, <laughs> in order to enjoy it with me. But you never know. I mean, I, well, I'd love to go, because Norm's in Australia, isn't he? He is. And I'd, I'd love to go to Australia to fish for Murray Cod. That's one of my, one of my ambitions. Uh, so, yeah, I'll let you know, Norm, if I'm coming over, and then perhaps I can um, enjoy your, your, well, your inclinations, your natural history inclinations, certainly. Anyway, back to Gillian's question. Hi Heather, I love the podcast, I've never missed an episode. Good Lord, Gillian. One day I'll get round to writing you a review. Hmm. Hmm. But in the meantime, rest in the knowledge, I will be a listener for as long as you lot are podcasters. Now, Isn't that lovely? What, is that amazing though? Because all these years we've yeah. been doing it and Gillian... She just... still sounds reasonably sane as well. She does. <laughs> Uh, Can I tap into your collective knowledge on composting? I'm aware that it's important in conventional composters and wormeries to include lots of brown waste by way of cardboard and paper. I try to garden organically. Rich will be pleased. Mm. And was wondering what effect modern printing dyes might have on this aim. It seems impossible to get hold of any newspapers or cardboard packaging these days which are not covered in coloured printer's ink. Even our local free rag is not immune. Are there nasties in printer's ink I should be aware of and can I still call myself organic if I am applying resultant compost to my garden? Thanks in advance and keep on casting. I think the answer to that, Jane, uh, broadly speaking, is that uh, no, inks aren't, coloured inks aren't the problem that they would have been years ago. In fact, most printers would use vegetable-based yeah. inks Our printers these days. all use vegetable inks now. Yeah. They've really cleaned up their act. They I've b- had been lucky enough to go around three printers and the changes that they've had to implement are unbelievable and probably quite rightly so indeed indeed and in fact someone that uh, I, w- I was associated with did some studies at the central returns technology uh, comparing the existing heavy metal uh, traces in soil up there compared to the those that uh, exist in in inks and found that they were were comparable one another extent wise okay so there we are you can relax Gillian mm. have a radox bath I, think, I suppose the only thing is when you put, you know, coloured glossy magazines into compost, it takes longer to break down because there might be... There, sometimes publishers disguise little filaments of plastic in a And, and you, you know, you might end up... Well, yeah, you might end up sort of pulling back. But that, again, in itself, uh, isn't a real problem as long as you, you know, pick it out. 
Ring neck pheasants, in particular, are commonly bred and were introduced into many parts of the world. It's the state bird of South Dakota. Well. Now then, next question in on Twitter. It's the state bird of South Dakota, even though they were native to the Russian steppes or wherever it was. Mm. I wonder if some of this stuff on the internet is altogether reliable. <laughs> <laughs> it's on the BBC. If anyone knows any different, if anyone knows Richard, any different, Richard, it's know. on the BBC. Yeah, BBC. They're only human. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, here we go. Next question in on Twitter. How do we feel about the possibility that DEFRA may remove pigeon from their general license? <laughs> Says Ross, 99 Station Street. What does he mean? I don't fully understand. Well, what he means by that is that at the moment, pigeon are considered to be vermin, yeah. and you have a general licence to shoot them as a pest. Okay. And I think what Ross is getting at is that they're talking about the possibility of changing that, and I think in Ross's case, because he runs a restaurant, mm-hmm. it makes a difference to how he can serve pigeon in his restaurant. Right. But I'm not fully up to speed on it, but if that is the case, then DEFRA are being their normal <laughs> and frankly, Finding work for themselves again. Oh, I mean, it's yeah. just... I mean, within the pigeon family, things like collared doves are a different ballgame because wild collared doves are things that there are not a vast number of, and you shouldn't be shooting those. But in my view, the wood pigeon and the various derivatives of it do very nicely, thank you. There are masses of wood pigeons around, mm. and they seem to have done very well for themselves. Folks will often say now that the, well, the wood pigeons, you don't see the, the densities of flocks that you used to see, but that's probably because arable farming is more spatial. Well, I think what's happened is that an increasing area of winter-planted oilseed rape have given pigeons a vast area of arable land mm. to feed on over the wintertime. Mm. They used to be a huge problem on spring-sown crops, in our case, such as peas, right. and we used to have to shoot thousands of them every year. Right. Um, and, you know, we logged Did you employ fact. people to come and do it? We didn't employ them, but we had, had a group of people who came. But pigeons. certainly when we used to farm down near Ross, we would shoot thousands a year. Yeah, yeah. And if you didn't... Well, that still happens, doesn't it? When yeah. lots of, you know, the, the people do go on to, to land and, uh, and then set up little hides under hedges. But if you didn't, there'd be no crop, and it was as simple as that. But mm. there was no way we would set out, nor even could we succeed in exterminating them, and they, they do very well. Right. You've been eating them, haven't you, Rich? Well, I love wood pigeon. I really love it. There's a, a thing to behold, either a, a breast of wood pigeon on a, on a bed of green lentils or simply roasted, you know, it, it's a gorgeous... Must be recently, a fairly small meal. Well, a pigeon is sufficient, but recently Sarah's been saying, oh, I'd like to try pigeon again, I'd like to try it. So anyway, on the, on the weekend, Saturday, I, I popped off a couple of pigeons, plucked them on, popped them in the fridge. So I opened the fridge and said, oh, well, they look quite nice, those pigeons. I said, yeah, I thought we'd have them tomorrow. Give them a go, you know. So uh, Sarah cooked them up, and she really enjoyed it, which uh, which was a result for me because it, it was, while Sarah enjoys our own lamb, our own you know pheasants, our own hens, things like that, I've never managed to get her into that. What is it? I suppose a slightly livery flavour of a wood pigeon, but she adored it. So result, yeah. So that means uh, that will pave the way for more wood pigeon feasting opportunities for both of us, you know. Bearing in mind the bird is so small. And the shot is so big, how do you avoid ending up with a bird that's full of shot? 
Be well, it's a funny thing, you know, if it, it tends to be, it's only pigeons and the like, you're never going to get that close to lace them with lead. Uh, and because the body is smaller, then you, you get fewer pellets in the meat. What I tend to do, in fact, is bump my pigeons off when they're feeding on the, uh, the ivy around the, around the house with the air rifle. So you've got one uh, little tiny lead pellet. It's also, you know, sensibly a lot less expensive than a shotgun cartridge. Why do I want to spend more money if I don't have to? The frugal fishbowl. <laughs> the fact of the matter is that actually, as long as you, you know there's the possibility, possibility that there is likely to be lead shot in them, it's, it's no hardship to pick them out. The problem comes when your consumer has no idea and chews on one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> a bit of lead if you're looking, you can see the them, motor. it's not a problem. Pheasant yeah. fact. When the weather conditions are bad for a long time, the ring-neck pheasant will tend to stay on its roost and go without eating until the weather clears. That's true. Do you have ring-neck pheasants on your part? Yeah. yeah. The wild ones are mostly ring-necks. Don't they have a propensity to walk further and uh, you know, travel well, greater distances and leave the land and things like that? Every gamekeeper will tell you a different story. There's a lot yeah. of old wives' tales involved and you know, some types of pheasant fly faster some walk off the shoot all the time at the end of the day they're all going to move around and the way i look at it is if some of my pheasants walk off then some of my neighbor's pheasants are likely to walk on and if you look after your pheasants look after the fox population the job will be right yeah and what's the deal on the golden or the white pheasant how do they come about well, occasionally you get white pheasants, which are, you know, from the bred pheasants. Every so often one is thrown up as white or near white. And they're quite fun because they go into the chute with all the other birds. Mm. But when they get to fly out over the guns, there is a hefty fine attached to the white pheasant. And it gets heftier either if you miss it or don't shoot at it. Oh, well, that's quite complicated, isn't it? So essentially, if the white pheasant flies out over you, and so it's your, in your area of the line, the cheapest option, you're, it's going to cost you money, whichever way you look at it, but the cheapest option is to shoot it. If you don't shoot at it, that's the most expensive option, and if you shoot at it and miss it, that's the middle option. So really, after all these podcasts where you've told us that this is a totally sustainable, gentle sport, you're having a laugh at the cost of a pheasant's I don't death. Phil, I don't think Phil's ever said it's gentle. Well, you know what I mean. It's, it's cheaper than it's, it's actually... I don't know where it's come from. I mean, every, ever since I was small, there has oh, been that... Oh, so it's traditional, no, so it's No, it may right. be traditional, but there is that element that that is one of the keeper's perks. That's how he gets an extra perk from the shoot, and that's how it's always been. Mm. There you are. There we are. Now, um, tell us about your DNA, Phil. My DNA. Take us back... To the cow problem. Well, last March we had a number of calves born and we registered these calves with DEFRA, with the Cattle Movement uh, Service, at birth. And there was a bunch of five calves that I registered on my system, I tagged, and as far as I was concerned, I'd registered them with the central computer at DEFRA. And I thought no more about it until we wanted to move the calves last autumn and I collated all my passports, and I thought, that's very strange, I'm five short. And to cut a long story short, I couldn't prove what had happened, whether I'd failed to register them, registered them, and something had gone wrong in the computing at the Cattle Movement Service. Couldn't prove any of it. So I've essentially got five calves 
with no registration documents. And because I'd gone over the 27 days old, they wouldn't give me any registration documents. And the upshot of that is that they can never move off the farm other than to a knacker yard. You know, they can't go into the food chain or anything like that. So I could keep them to breed from, should I want to, but I didn't. Or they go to the knacker yard or whatever. The way out is to have them and their mothers DNA tested to prove that the mother and the calf are related to each other and then why don't you just sign a piece of paper saying this is true well it's interesting because up to 27 days old that is the case I sign a piece of paper that says that this calf is out of this cow once it's 27 days old that signature is no longer good enough and that I'm now not permitted to do that so you're not trusted no and so thereafter, and there was a bit of a rumpus about this because it used to be they only did it at their discretion, but now they, they have to do it. You have both mother and child DNA tested and assuming that that comes back that it agrees with what you're saying, and in our case it did, obviously. Well, let's have a look at the pieces of paper. So we, uh, for those of you who are listening in colour, he's now opening... <coughs> so these are the passports that are mm. the total... So the, the, the DNA test was fine... And I then send the DNA test results off to them and they will send me back to the passport. So the passport is a checkbook style document. Mm. For each animal? Each animal has one. And the identity of the animal is the tag number at the top. There's a barcode that corresponds with it. There's its breed, its sex, its date of birth and the identity of its mother. And then inside the passport, not that this animal's moved anywhere are all its movement records and all the rest of it. And every animal has to have one of these. And once I've got this, I can now move the animal off the farm and it can go into the food chain. Good Lord. The sad thing is that the cost of DNA testing five animals and their mothers is £300, which has taken the shine off those five animals. But obviously without the DNA test, they're actually valueless. Right. They probably represent a cost, actually, nowadays. Right. Something else that was quite shocking that I heard about the other day is uh, electronic tagging. What's the situation there? Isn't that a new initiative that DEFRA are trying to... They're, they're, to they've brought in electronic tagging in sheep. Right. And the idea is that they want more traceability within the sheep flock. There is a case for saying electronic tagging actually would make sheep management for the farmer quite a lot better and easier yeah but it's a lot of cost and the fact that it's they are uh, about one pound 30 each yeah. or something and like i that. i think it's a bit over the top in terms of making life easier for the farmer if the if the animals were electronically tagged how how is that well it means that he can quickly and easily identify animals with a remote scanner i see so that in terms of uh, grading your sheep or dealing with them for breeding purposes you can manage different portions of the flock much more easily rather than actually having to catch hold of it. It's like our warehouse. Right, right. So barcoded in locations yeah, yeah, yeah. and scanned yeah, in yeah, and out yeah. makes it much easier yeah, to actually right. know <laughs> where right, stuff yeah. is yeah. instead of asking Rach all the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And currently she doesn't know where peanut bird balls are. Yeah, right. You know, what can you do? Uh, it could indeed. be anywhere. Well, it's just not good enough though, is it? <laughs> I think it's another case of Farmers in general don't like politicians telling them what to do for reasons that are fairly spurious, but the go-ahead farmers might very well say, I can make sense of that cost because I can manage my flock more accurately with it. 
And it's the same old thing. Are you going to be government controlled or are you going to be controlled by good sense and marketing? Same old argument, really, isn't it? I'm yeah. reading this review here. I'm not sure our podcast is up to this because we've gone all dull and dopey, haven't we? We're having a dull and dopey day. But this is what he says. Dark oh, yeah. evenings and days, says the son of the goddess. There I was staring out of the train window into the gloom. No more glorious sunsets. No more combines reaping the land. No rabbits basking in the sun. No more foxes by hedgerows. What was I going to do to pass the time? Read, perhaps? Doze, stare at the other travellers? But no, help us a hand. The Wiggly podcasts are back. Thankfully, some fun-filled, interesting conversations on a range of subjects that can stimulate my mind and tickle my laughter buds from the best podcast in the land. Even when Farmer Phil rattles on about poor cows and Heather about dog wind, I never mind. Welcome back, you've been missed. Today, whilst crunching through the snowy mush on the pavements of South London, I was able to catch up on podcasts 204, 5 and 6. And what a glorious mix it was. I love tea, and I learned more about tea in 10 minutes than 25 years. Cow's breakfasts are now officially interesting, and DEFRA are indeed idiots. (laughs) (laughs) Here's to a great Wiggly 2010 worth of pods. Well, sorry about today's show, Son of the Goddess, because it seems that we are gloomily trudging our way through the snowy mush of Blakemere. Well, actually, I can, I can tell you the reason why, of course, that, that Monday... Of but this, you're boring, Phil. Well, no, the, the, we're a bit gloomy this oh. week, because Monday this week, so three days ago or whatever, is officially Blue Monday, and it is the most depressing day of the year, apparently. Oh, right. oh brilliant! So I think these days are thoughtful, aren't they? I mean, <laughs> these these days, because you've got this kind of condensed gloom around you, it just gives you the opportunity to sit back and perhaps dwell on stuff that you mightn't otherwise do. And we're not here to cheer people up, are we? We're not here to entertain or brighten their day. No, we want them to share in our depression. How <laughs> oh, well done, boys. You've done a brilliant job this week. Good luck to Podchef. He's farm hunting in Maine. It's good, that, isn't it? Is I, I've is been he? viewing all the farms that he's been to see, and they look great. Right, right. Has he, uh, so he's, he's got a few quid stashed. Does he pod chef on the quiet? I mean, he must have been inundated with people well, travelling over to his island. he flogged the home ranch, right? and so now he's got to go and find a new pod chef residence. Okay. And so he's gone right across the country and is hunting in Maine. Oh, wow. Oh. Before we go, great British Bird Watch Week. The Big Garden Bird Watch is on 30th of January. So if you want details, pop off to the RSPB website and you can take part in that. And we've got our bird taster packs, which are good for that too. And we can get those out to you really quickly. Brill. Rock it. Farmer Phil, catch us up on snow clearing Farmer Phil style. Because we imagine that the, the council are gritting the roads, etc. But really, it's farmers out there, isn't it? That's right. Well, in, particularly in rural areas, the council don't have the resource to clear the snow off the, most of the roads. They'll do the main roads, but not the rural roads. And so they rely on local contractors to do the rest of it. And the local contractors round here are led by your brother, George, and I'm one of them. And they, the council give us an area each on a map and say, there you are, that's your playpen, go and clear the snow off that lot. And What's so the going we, rate, then? For, uh, what do they pay you? That's quite an interesting subject, that, because it does <laughs> vary. 
Aren't you embarrassed to ask that? I mean, this is... No, well, listen, this is something the listener really wants to say, because this is what I want. Because I see <laughs> farmers scraping up down the lane with their snow plough, and I think, well, I wonder what he gets for that. It's quite an interesting subject, because the farmers get somewhere around 30 35 pound an hour whether it's in the middle of the night or whatever so that includes the hire of the kit and it includes the wage of the individual driving the tractor. Oh, Richard's little <laughs> eyes have lit up, and I can just see him imagining his down, own kit. I'm tractor and put that on my list of contractors. <laughs> but actually, £35, if you think about it, again, uh, having to work for £35 and uh, it's not you, with your own it, machinery and your, and your own fuel, presumably, is there a yeah. fuel allowance? Or no. That, that's included. So it's not that much. You're not going to make a fortune. Uh, the reason we get involved is you can't do anything else. When it's snowy, you can't do any field work. For us, all we've got to do is to look after the cattle and sort out the bird food so that to go out snow ploughing is a means of earning money. And to be quite honest with you, it's good fun. But you've got red diesel in it and you're on I the road. I have got red diesel. <laughs> no I'm clearing. allowed to have red diesel What's, in uh, it. So, okay, so 10 hours, 350 quid. What, uh, what, how, how much fuel are you going to burn in 10 hours? I could put 40 gallons through my tractor in 10 hours. 40 gallons, and uh, red diesel, what would that be? Uh, At the moment, uh, it's about 50p a litre. 50p a litre, OK. Oh, so gallons and litres to confuse us. Four and a half litres in a gallon. Yeah, 50 a gallon or something, yeah. All you right. can, you, you know, it, it is profitable, but it's not a licence to print the stuff. Right. On that note, <laughs> we'll end the show. In gloom, <laughs> in greyness, in sludginess... And hope that next week you two cheer up! Bye from me. Bye from me. Bye from me.